Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, I'll be bringing you the latest in science news along with Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. Coming up, the world's first close-up footage of a deep ocean volcanic explosion. The detailed footage and the samples collected by Jason will help to reveal many of the secrets of how the ocean islands are formed and how underwater volcanoes are born themselves. And it'll show us things like how heat and carbon dioxide and sulphur are cycled between the deep interior of the Earth and the surface. The discovery of a watery super-Earth... Now, this could possibly be a very small planet with an enormous atmosphere, so it's blocking um, lots of light, which is thought to be quite unlikely. Or it could be a small, rocky planet surrounded by an enormously deep ocean, thousands of kilometres deep. However, it might not be the kind of wonderful kind of place to go for your holidays and do lots of swimming, because it's thought to be over, should be about 190 degrees Celsius on the surface, so it could be a bit warm. And how understanding the difference between leg bone and skull bone could help to prevent bone weakness. Well, clearly, if there was a way of tricking or making the bones of the, uh, the most of the skeleton feel that they were a bit more like the skull, then you'd be able to improve or maintain mineral density. But really, we're at a very early stage. I think it's quite a, it was a surprise to some people to show that these bone cells really are that different. I think a lot of people consider that they are fundamentally the same. Plus, a breakthrough in cancer genetics, the evolution of the koala, and how the way we remember dance moves reveals the cultural effect on cognition. That's all on the way. Now, the first comprehensive analyses of cancer genomes have been published in the journal Nature this week. The research, led by teams at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, has been called truly groundbreaking by people at Cancer Research UK. What's so exciting about this work is not just that they catalogue the mutations in each tumour, but that their technique enables them to work out the causes and the history of the mutations. Looking at two patients, one with lung cancer and the other with melanoma, Mike Stratton and colleagues sequenced both tumour cells and healthy cells, and they could then compare like with like to identify which parts of the DNA differed in the cancerous cells. By doing this, they discovered over 23,000 mutations in lung cancer and in excess of 33,000 for the melanoma. We've known for a while that these two cancers have very strong associations with tobacco smoke for lung cancer and with exposure to UV radiation in melanoma. Looking at these mutations and the genes around them, the researchers were able to identify a mutation signature for each risk factor. For example, many of the mutations relate to chemicals in tobacco smoke that bind to and interact with DNA. With melanoma, Dr. Andrew Futrell from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute said, we can see sunlight's signature writ large in the genome. I thought he put it so nicely that I'd use his own words. They also found telltale signs of attempted but failed DNA repair, which suggests that our bodies try and often fail to repair the damage done. This work further shows that there isn't a single triggering factor for cancer. The mutations build up over time and exposure, spanning years before the cancer itself becomes apparent. Which of these mutations are responsible for making a cell cancerous is now the major challenge for the next few years. Other cancers have far less obvious risk factors, and sequencing genomes is neither quick nor cheap, so there's still a great deal of work to be done. 
But research like this, combined with the fact that sequencing is becoming ever cheaper, will help to change the landscape of cancer research, prevention and treatment. So I think this is a very good story. Helen, what have you got? Right. Well, news this week that for the first time, scientists have caught on camera an erupting underwater volcano. It's really very exciting. This is spectacular footage and it shows enormous glowing bubbles of lava about a metre across bursting into the Pacific Ocean and for the first time lava flowing across the seafloor. And this is all about a kilometre below the surface, a bit more than that. And it's a type of volcanic eruption called a bonanite eruption and it's only been seen before in extinct million-year-old volcanoes. This is really very exciting. This is the West Matter volcano and it was visited by an unmanned submersible vessel called Jason um, and that's from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and it's actually part of a huge major research project involving a group of researchers from all all the way across the United States. And this volcanic, these uh, actually the volcanic explosions that this um, the submersible was filming um, are in fact suppressed by the enormous pressure so deep down underwater. So what this means is that it allows the vessel to get extremely close to the erupting volcano, in fact up to just a few feet away. Um, and that's much, much closer than on land or in shallower water. And there's an awful lot we can learn from this underwater volcano. It's really very exciting indeed. The detailed footage and the samples collected by Jason will help to reveal many of the secrets of how the ocean islands are formed and how underwater volcanoes are are born themselves and just what's going on at a tectonic plate that's being subducted under another one which is where this volcano was in the Pacific and it'll show us things like how heat and carbon dioxide and sulphur are cycled between the deep interior of the earth and the surface and this is all very important because it's thought that up to 80% of the eruptive activity on the earth actually takes place in the oceans and most most of it, like this one, are in the deep sea, and that's something we really know very little about. Now, surrounding this volcano, and this is, I think, this, the most brilliant part of it, is uh, some of the most harshest conditions um, to live on Earth, and yet life has been found to be thriving there. Researchers have found a diverse community of microbes living around the volcano, and that's despite this huge, immense pressure and very acidic waters directly above the volcano because of everything that's spewing out of it from the deep interior of the Earth. Um, it's extremely acidic, it's about as strong as a, as a battery acid or even stomach acid. It. And they've also found some shrimp thriving around these volcanic vents. And uh, they've taken DNA samples um, by grabbing bits on the outside of, of Jason. And they're going to take them away and see if, how re- closely related these shrimps are to other submarine volcanoes, uh, ones living on other ones thousands of miles away. So this is telling us about this life that we, we really have you know, little, very little idea about, but it's clinging on in the most unlikely circumstances. And it, it just really goes to show um, that we, we don't know so much about the Earth and how it works yet and reminds us of what extraordinary things there are still waiting to be discovered. It's astounding how little we know about the deep sea. I mean, it is, but then if we think about it, it's quite a challenging environment to work in, extremely challenging, and it's just really exciting that we're getting down there and producing pictures of these underwater volcanoes. You wouldn't have thought such a thing was possible, but it's, in fact, you know, masses and masses of volcanic activity that's going on and it's really important so it's fantastic it's not a very exciting name for a submersible though is it just calling it jason jason i think it's quite sweet (laughs) (laughs) but you're right no it's not very yes anyway i think i'd like to no i don't know if i'd like to get inside one i know this one you can't i think the idea of going deep down is rather terrifying so i'll let everyone else do that and come back and tell me what they found thank you
Thanks, Helen. Now, over the last few years, astronomers have discovered over 400 planets outside of our solar system. So far, most of these have been large gas giant planets, a bit like Jupiter or Uranus in our solar system, and most of them have been very close to their stars. Not because there's necessarily more of this type of planet in the universe, because they're much easier to detect, but now the instruments are getting good enough to detect smaller planets called super-Earths, which are sort of between a gas giant size and the Earth size. Um, there's two main ways of detecting um, these distant planets, either by looking at how their gravity moves their star around, and you can actually detect that by looking at the light coming from the star, or by looking for the dip of brightness produced by a planet moving past its star. From the first, you can tell the mass of a planet, and from the second, you can tell how large it is, its area, the bigger planets block more light. Now, using both of these methods, a group led by David Charbonnet from Harvard University has discovered a planet called GJ 1214b, orbiting a red dwarf star, which seems to have a mass about 6.6 times that of Earth, but a volume over 19 times larger, which means it has a density of only about 1.9 times that of water. Now, this could possibly be a very small um, planet with an enormous atmosphere, so it's blocking um, lots of light, but which is thought to be quite unlikely. Or it could be a small rocky planet surrounded by an enormously deep ocean, thousands of kilometres deep, which is a rather wonderful thought, a huge ocean like that. Absolutely, yeah. And it's that deep. I mean, because we're on average about seven kilometres, aren't we? So, so yeah, I mean, the ocean on Earth is only a very thin layer yeah. of the surface. Um, however, it might not be the kind of wonderful kind of place to go for your holidays and do lots of swimming because it's thought to be over should be about 190 degrees Celsius on the surface, um, so it could be a bit warm. Oh dear. Okay, um, so I shall stay clear of that one. Perhaps. And that they're uh, they're not quite sure which one it is, but they're applying to use a Hubble Space Telescope to look at the light coming from the planet directly and spectroscopically try and work out what what it's made of and if it is actually got lots and lots of water in it. I wonder if anything lives in it as well. I mean, it could do, couldn't it? It'd be exciting. <laughs> it's always interesting to think that there might be planets out there with things that we've never discovered living on. That's definitely something for the future, though, unfortunately. Now, the way that we remember dance moves reveals the incredible flexibility of the human brain, according to research published in Current Biology this week. Daniel Holm of the Max Planck Research Group for Comparative Cognitive Anthropology studied the way that different cultures remember dance moves, and this was inspired by previous research that shows how different cultures use different strategies for describing the world. For example, I might think that the microphone on this desk is in front of me, whereas a nomadic hunter-gatherer from Namibia, if he were in the studio next to me, would think of the microphone as being to the west of him. Now, these are two different ways of encoding the spatial relationships between objects, and they're called egocentric, which is based around yourself, and allocentric, effectively based around everything else. And our brains use these two interchangeably. However, the way that the brain encodes the positions of our hands and our feet, this is called proprioceptive space, is strongly egocentric, so it's always based around us. Now, because of this, you might assume that the way we move our bodies would also be egocentric. We would always base these movements around ourselves. However, it seems that that's not always the case. The team asked two groups of children to learn a simple dance, one group from Germany and another group of San or Bushmen called Haikom. The dance instructor stood next to the children and showed them a simple dance sequence that involved shaking clasped hands together from side to side, starting with the right, then the left, and then back to the right. So once the children had learned the dance, they were asked to turn around, so they were facing the opposite direction, and do the dance again. 
The German schoolchildren almost always moved their hands to the right first, regardless of what direction they were facing. The high com children, however, would switch movements depending on which way they were facing. The direction was absolute rather than personal. So if they started on the right when they were facing north, they would start on the left when they were facing south. Now, this shows that the way our brain codes our body movements is not strictly egocentric, but it is in part defined by our culture, or as they put it on the paper, cultural diversity goes hand-in-hand with cognitive diversity. This may sound like a bit of fun, but it does have a serious message about the way that we study the brain. When we seek to understand cognitive function, it's vitally important to include a cross-cultural perspective. The brain does not exist in isolation. Horn said, It's becoming more and more clear that we cannot simply extrapolate from investigations within our population to others. To understand the human mind, we need to widen our perspective and assume diversity rather than universality of cognition until proven otherwise. So there you go. If you're studying the brain, bear that in mind. I think that's definitely something to bear in mind if you're on the Christmas dance floor. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe it's an excuse for some of the poor shows on the British dance floors. I'm always convinced that, you know, compared to other cultures, the Brits aren't good at dancing. So maybe it's something to do with our brains. And the way we're brought up, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, I'm going to move things a bit further south now to Australia and those dozy, lovable emblems of Australia, the Australian uh, outback, if you like, the koalas. And they look like teddy bears, but being marsupials, they're only very distantly related to real bears. And a new study sheds light on the little-known evolution of koalas, revealing that their ancestors didn't have the specialised teeth and jaws that would have allowed them to eat tough and somewhat toxic eucalyptus. Leaves, and it turns out that koalas were actually only more recently adapted to cope with this unique diet. Now, publishing in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, researchers from the University of New South Wales and CSIRO in Australia investigated the fossilised skulls of two koala species that lived once a long time ago in Australia in the Miocene, that's around 24 to 5 million years ago. Now, the team also found some striking similarities in these prehistoric and modern koalas. Both of them have a round, hollow, bony structure in the ear, which is a key to their ability to create loud and complex vocalisations. Because koalas may be lazy, but they can be extremely noisy, bellowing at each other across the treetops. And it's something, it turns out, that they've been doing for quite a long time and long before they evolved their eucalyptus leaf habit. Now, the eucalyptus has really only became abundant as Australia drifted away from the tropics and it became drier and there was there were less rainforests around. So that kind of makes sense that they adapt their diet to to deal with these different trees but um that's not all that's not the only news we had this week about koalas rather sadly we also heard that they are among a group of species that have been um basically listed as the most likely to be hit hardest by climate change scientists from the international union for the conservation of nature iucn have highlighted the plight of a long list of species that will probably not fare very well at all in the coming years Um, and that includes clownfish beluga whales emperor penguins and all sorts of other things. But the koalas in particular may face starvation because the um, nutritional quality of the eucalyptus leaves they love to eat so much is predicted to decline as levels of carbon dioxide increase. So uh, there we go. We learned a bit more about koalas this week, but we 
also think that uh, maybe their future is a little bit uncertain, which is very sad indeed, I think. It is. I would have thought that eucalyptus doesn't have a great deal of nutritional value in the first place. Well, exactly. And that is one of the sort of conundrums about koalas as to why they bother, because they aren't much fun. <laughs> and they supposedly make their brains a bit fuzzy too, um, because of the eucalyptus oils uh, in, in the leaves. But um, yeah, so they're really on a knife edge as it is. And if they lose that nutrition, it could be even worse for them. So That's there we something, go. Something to keep an eye on, yes. Also in the news this week, scientists at Queen Mary University of London have discovered some fundamental differences between the bone in our skulls and the bones in our limbs. And this could hold the key to tackling bone weakness and fractures and osteoporosis. They've published their work in the journal PLOS One, and we're joined by Dr Ian McKay to explain a bit more. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Hello. So what does happen to bones over time? Well, there's a, a gradual and progressive loss of most bone structure and strength, and that uh, will ultimately lead to osteoporosis. And by osteoporosis, of course, it comes from bone and pores or holes. So essentially, we're thinking of holes in the bones. That's, that's right. And that's, it's so common. I mean, about 50% of all women over 50 are going to suffer from this condition in some form. So what, have, what is it that you've been looking at? Well, it, it, in one sense, it sounds like the science of the patently obvious because we've been comparing the bones from the skull to the arm. But when you consider osteoporosis, what's interesting is that the skull really doesn't show the same vulnerability to osteoporosis as the rest of the skeleton. Um, what's more curious you know, on that basis is that the load, the, we know that you need mechanical forces to maintain most of your skeleton. If you don't walk about, you know, you will, your bones will, atrophy, will, will um, dissolve and um, be less strong. But the same is not the case for the skull, which doesn't actually experience the same mechanical forces as your arms and legs. Um, probably um, the forces on your arms and legs are maybe 20 to 30 times higher. Um, so it's rather interesting why the skull should be protected in this way. So is it not just the case that bones become weaker, such as the limb bones, because of the different mechanical stresses? Well, it is to a certain extent, and, and you can maintain that to a, to a certain. You can maintain that by exercise as you get older, but the the skull really seems to be completely insensitive to that. And what we've been doing is looking at the um, the genetic differences between the cells that make the bone in your skull and in your arm, and we find that they are indeed quite different. So these are factors that, that occur in the womb, I assume. So the, the genes, different genes are switched on. Some say, I'm going to make skull bone that will never end up with osteoporosis. And others say, I'm going to make arm bone. It'll be under lots of tension and eventually it may become weak. Well, yes. I mean, I think this just emphasises the, the, the complex nature. People look at a tissue like bone and they assume it's, it's uniform over the whole body. But in fact, if you think about it, your arms and your legs actually all experience different forces and are designed to res respond to those forces differently. And what we're looking at with the skull is a really uh, a very dramatic difference between um, being very hard and protective in the absence of these normal mechanical stimuli. And as these are genetic factors, do they only really kick in in the womb? What happens when we damage our bones and we have to grow back new bone to knit old broken ones together? Well, there's two, there's two aspects to that. The first is that you obviously do, when you re regenerate your bone, you regenerate bone of an appropriate character for the, the, damage, the damaged tissue. But the other thing is that this mechanical responsiveness that the most of the skeleton seems to 
show is something which seems to be acquired during, um, during development, before birth, in the maternal environment. And there's increasing evidence that actually what happens before birth will determine your final mineral mass, your final bone density and strength when you're an adult. And obviously the more bone you have, the less likely you are to be affected by osteoporosis in later life. And obviously this is something quite important for for this time of year. It's very icy out there, certainly in Cambridge at the moment, and people will fall. And when your bones are weak, certainly in the elderly, you can do a lot of damage to yourself. Are we learning anything from your work that can help to prevent this or help to protect people from damaging their bones? Well, clearly, if there was a way of um, tricking or um, uh, moving the, making the bones of the, uh, the most of the skeleton feel that they were a bit more like the skull, then you'd be able to improve or uh, maintain mineral density. But really, we're at a very early stage. I think it's quite, um, it's quite a, it was a surprise to some people to show that these bone cells really are that different. I think a lot of people consider that they are uh, fundamentally the same. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Where should we go next? Where's the next step for you? Well, I think the next important step is to find out um, when during development these um, the mechanical responsiveness is being established. Um, I mean, there's increasing, there's quite good evidence now that you, as I said, that you can direct or um, correlate changes in the maternal blood chemistry with the bone density of children who are eight, nine years old. But what we don't know is when during um, pregnancy, that that important set point is being established. And I think that's a key element if we wanted to intervene and maybe manipulate bone density. And these kind of the gene work we've done will identify some of the markers, which I think will be important in that. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us in. We'll have to leave it there. That was Dr Ian Mackay from Queen Mary University of London on how they found some key differences in between skull bones and limb bones and that these may give us some clues to help prevent bone damage or, in fact, have stronger bones. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which was produced by me, Ben Falsler, and featured Helen Scales, Dave Hansel, and our guest, Dr. Ian Mackay. You can read about all of these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientists.com, where you can also find all of our other podcasts. We'll be back with more science news in the new year, so have a very Merry Christmas and goodbye. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Dot com.